welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. Today I'm joined by Amanda Blake and we are going to explore Amanda's recent PhD thesis entitled Embodied Awareness, Embodied Practice, A Powerful Path to Practical Wisdom. Amanda has spent years researching the efficacy of body-based coaching interventions and comparing those to practices like meditation and yoga. So we're going to unpack all the findings, including what does embodied awareness mean? What is this term embodied self-awareness? It's emerging out of the field of neuroscience and what are its implications for us as coaches? Amanda, for me, is just one of these people really at the forefront of applying the latest findings of neuroscience into coaching. She is the author of a book I really recommend, Your Body is Your Brain, and she has a long-term coach and a master somatic coach. Okay, all that being said, let's dive in now. Here is the podcast with Amanda Blake. Mandy, it's a real joy to be connecting with you again, particularly because you've had kind of a sabbatical over the last year. Uh, how are you doing right now? Uh, fantastic. Super excited to talk to you today and um, uh, much more well-rested than when we probably talked to this time last year. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah good. I actually wanted to start by reading a little bit of it first and then, and then kind of asking a follow-up question. Don't often do this, but um, yeah. So basically, it's just the start, the abstract. I think it really nicely tees up uh, some questions. So you wrote that the early 21st century zeitgeist has been characterized by a cultural and corporate fascination with leveraging body-mind practices such as meditation, yoga, uh, and others as tools for professional performance. And at the same time, executive coaches trained in body-mind approaches to coaching make strong, but as yet unsubstantiated claims about the transformative power of body-based behavioral learning. Practitioner Literature suggests that developing embodied self-awareness, that's something I think we're going to talk about a lot today, enhances well-being, resilience, and relationships while building the emotional and social intelligence that sets outstanding leaders apart from ordinary ones. These claims are consistent with theoretical relationships between brain, body, and behavior, but they have yet to be put to the empirical test. So... Uh, I'll just read a little bit more than these. This mixed methods research project seeks to challenge, clarify and validate these claims by examining the antecedents and outcomes of embodied self-awareness through both a theoretical and empirical lens. And so you you go on further to say that you've then uh, done a qualitative study based on on interviews and thematic analysis with over 550 coaches and um, and other things which I think you can speak to. And I'm just wondering, um, what was the outcome of this research project? Uh, yeah, what, what did you kind of conclude about the um, necessity of, of a brain-body approach and the validity of these methods or the importance of them in any, any kind of change process? Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple things I want to say. And actually, before I get to outcomes, which I definitely want to address. Let me just make one clarifying point for, for anyone who's listening, who um, knows anything about science. Uh, I did not do qualitative research with over 500 people. That piece was quantitative. So if anyone, if you're out there going, oh my God, 
that's a lot. That would be a lot. But I, good but correction. Then, Thank you. Yes, <laughs> you're welcome. The, what I did do was a, a mixed method study. So um, several different kinds of approaches and three different studies. I'm triangulating among them. So what that means is the outcomes that I'm about to share are um, really supported by convergent evidence that is looking through a qualitative lens, which meant I went out and talked to people about their experience and just with a really open mind, um, tried to listen very keenly to the words they use, their tone of voice. And, and I matched that with some quantitative research um, with hundreds and hundreds of coaches who um, generously supplied their time and their, their you know, shared their, their experiences and their information um, in, in a different way. And being able to kind of triangulate between these methods and look through a number of lenses actually means that this study produces more, re more robust, more reliable results than any single study alone would do. So that's helpful. Still, it would be great to replicate all of this and look at it through even more lenses. But this is what I found fundamentally. Um, when people increase their embodied self-awareness, and we can define that term and talk about what it is, but just if you aren't familiar with that, just imagine you're feeling and sensing your body more, right? When people increase their embodied self-awareness, they also get better on a number of dimensions that are really important to our lives, intrapersonal skills and capacities. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, in, uh, I think I said intra, meaning inside yourself, right? Sort of internal skills and capacities, um, like flourishing, right? A measure of well-being and satisfaction with life, like resilience, the capacity to bounce back from stress and um, adaptability, the capacity to contend with change, which is something that we're really, you know, dealing with in life and in the world right now. Um, the, the, the ability to kind of roll with the punches and deal with the unexpected. Um, but at the same time, a number of interpersonal relational kinds of capacities also develop the, the capacity for empathy and to manage conflict to resolution, usually a positive resolution, especially when I was talking to people, I heard that a lot. And then when I surveyed a much larger group of people, um, all of the measures of capacity for conflict resolution went up as embodied self-awareness went up, as did the measure for connection. And all of these, I will say, um, uh, far exceeded common standard effect sizes that we see in psychology. So on average, an effect size in psychology would be maybe like 0.2, which is kind of, roughly speaking, that means, you know, if you were to increase embodied self-awareness by a unit of one, if that were possible, right? Let's just imagine that, that, that an effect size of 0.2 means whatever the other thing that, that is that comes along, it comes along and grows by about 20%, right? So, so that's kind of how that, how that works or what that points to. Um, with one exception, all of the effect sizes were um, 0.37 and above, which points them and, and some uh, point, 0.45, 0.54. What it means is, is that all of 
all of these capacities that I've mentioned, flourishing, resilience, especially empathy, conflict management, we see the effects of embodied self-awareness on these outcomes at twice the average level of what you see in psychology. Only 20 to 30% of results in psychology actually fall into effect sizes that are this strong, this significant. So it means that we have a really powerful lever in change when we change or shift or grow our embodied self-awareness. And quite frankly, I was surprised by, uh, you know, in my own life, I've experienced that powerful level lever. So I know how powerful it can be with my clients. I've seen it. So I know how powerful it can be, but I was still uh, even so surprised at how, strong the results were, how, how big these effect sizes were. Um, so I'm going to pause there so that we can dive into that more deeply. But there's another part of the research where I also looked at what are the ways that you can develop embodied self-awareness? And we can talk about that piece too. Mm, yeah. So actually what I'm hearing is like, if you're serious as a coach or somebody, just an individual who wants to um, you know, develop yourself, actually uh, developing embodied self-awareness is just a really great, great like bang for your buck, basically. You're going to, you're going to get a lot of purchase there. Yeah. Yeah. That's well said. I think that's exactly right. We we can, we can forget about all the percentages and point sizes and just say big bang for your buck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess that, you know, I do want to talk about how do we develop embodied self-awareness and more about what that is. Um, and actually, maybe that this question is is kind of taking us there because you talk about the um, the the importance of um, the holistic nature of behavioral learning, and you know, sort of saying how um, you know that's just going to affect everything: our ability to be present, listening deeply, uh, reflecting on someone else's changes. Um, could you speak to um, what you mean by that holistic nature? Um, because I think we can say like, you know, embodied self-awareness, uh, mind body connection, but what, let, let's kind of paint that picture of like, what do we mean by this holistic nature? Yeah, good. Um, so I, I should probably, since we've been talking about it, define the term embodied self-awareness, which really just means a present moment, non-judgmental attention to sensation movement and to uh, a certain degree, emotion as well. So, um, and emotion, we can talk about this, but emotion gets expressed through um, physical sensation. And you can, there's other research out there that shows that emotion is effectively a combination of physical sensation and our conceptual interpretation of those, those um, what those sensations might mean for us in our lives. Right. And so um, embodied self-awareness is our capacity to recognize and sort of accurately and usefully and wisely discern what our sensations and gestures, postures, movements signify about what's going on in our internal experience and maybe what they signify to other people on a subtle nonverbal level. Right. So it's knowing ourselves um, at this at this other level. And when you look at um, the the brain and sort of how the um, brain makes sense 
of sensation and motion. All of, all of our sensation and motion, you know, there's an interpretive process, a conceptual interpretive process. So there's not one way that this happens, but broadly speaking, our sensation and motion are um, kind of parsed and, and made most sense of by a part of the brain, the default mode network that sometimes gets a bad rap um, for being associated with mind wandering, for example. Um, but, but that's a part of us that um, is left really uneducated in our culture. So there's a, um, I don't know, I wanna call it a mirror image, but sort of a companion to the default mode network called the task positive network. And, and that network is much more focused on kind of analytical problem solving and thinking things through. Default mode is, a f it, it, it helps us um, with reasoning, but it helps us with like social reasoning. Like what should I do in this challenging situation with my loved one, for example, right? Or um, I need to, uh, motivate my team at work, right? So these are more issues of social reasoning. Um, it helps us make sense of emotions. It helps us, it's active when we're um, uh, sort of making moral and ethical decisions. So the default mode network is a type of, sort of supports a type of reasoning and so does the task positive network. But in our culture, we have a tendency to, for almost all learning, to focus on things that the task positive network is good at. So these are things like uh, math and language. These are things like uh, complex problem solving, not the complexity of relationships, but the complexity of like building a skyscraper, right? So we tend to orient our education in that direction. The thing is the default mode network, it seems, can, can only be um, educated through experience. So information doesn't really help develop that part of the brain. And what that means is that when we, so, so kind of coming full circle to your question about a holistic form of, of education, what that means, if, if you think about how um, an infant, a baby kind of learns to get a spoon to its mouth or learns to respond to its family members, right? Any kind of um, small child, the way they're learning, you know, it doesn't take too long to catch on to some language and then more and then more. Um, but a lot of the way they're learning right out of the gate is through sensory and physical cues. And those sensory and physical cues start to shape us from very, very early on in kind of our, our default behaviors, our, way, our emotional ways of being in the world, the way we respond to other people. And so if as adults, we want to actually change the way we behave or we want to actually build resilience or the capacity for deeper empathy, for example. Um, those are things that we can only learn, not through information, but through experience. And experience means we're moving our bodies, we're um, 
trying something out in our lives, right? Coaching in and of itself is sort of designed to be experiential, but I think we can make it even more so um, by tapping physical practices more and more. So I'll pause there. I've been talking a while. Mm. Please, please uh, focus me. <laughs> yeah, no, really uh, fascinating. And um, I want to talk about how does that, uh, what are the implications for coaching, for learning physical exercises? Um you know, again, this speaks to me of this theme of of like a, perhaps a wider movement. You know, there's been an explosion of interest in things like mindfulness and yoga and movement. And I think that's for a good reason. Um, I'm thinking now of even like some thought leaders I like to listen to, like John Vivekey, who's talked about the necessity for uh, participatory knowing, you know, like this again, yeah, this move into a kind of, uh, in the moment kind of um, situatedness, like the agent in the arena, I think he talks about, um, you know, that's extended and embodied. Um, and then uh, people like Benita Roy, who I find fascinating, you know, who's kind of also saying, you know, there's also a common in developmental coaching, this notion of like increasing in complexity of thinking, you know, and actually challenging that, yeah, we've biased that, you know, and Hey, in a way we're like, we're quite, we're quite phenomenally complex in our thinking these days. And and is that solving a lot of the world's challenges? Is that actually leading to the kinds of collaboration and, and, and experimentation and the solutions we need questionable? Uh, and she, and she's kind of advocating. And I hear that in what you're saying, actually for the opposite, what, what is it to instead move into, into like deep phenomenological experience more into our embodied extended life in, in relationship with nature uh it just seems to me fascinating there's a question coming out of this like but as you describe here it's like as children we learn in this way and we're not even consciously doing that yeah no it's like it's just inherent in there's something magical about that you know as i hear you describe it, it's phenomenal it's like what and what is it inside of us that that actually um is oriented to that that that, that way of like growing and learning and and somehow we hijack that whole system at some point with an education process that feels incredibly narrow. You know, I, th I think it is narrow and it's also incredibly valuable, right? Like, yeah. and so I don't want to, and I'm not suggesting that you are saying anything otherwise, but I just want to bring that in as a, like, nobody here is saying that educating the intellect is a bad idea. It's a great idea. The problem is the, the overemphasis. And I say this a lot. I've probably said this to you, Joel, but like the, it's like if you got a car for the first time and you were like, this is the coolest thing ever. And look, it turns to the left. And then for the next 40 years, you just kept turning to the left. Like every part of the car would wear in a certain way. The tires would wear, you know, the, um, wow, now I'm really, I don't know that much about cars, <laughs> you know, but the axle would wear the steering, um, sort of the steering wheel and the contraption that steers the car, everything would wear in the direction of the left. And that's essentially what we're doing when we're overemphasizing and educating the intellect to the exclusion of all else. Now let's be clear. This has been a bigger problem in Western culture than it has been in other parts of the world. 
And some of what we're talking about here is influence inspired and informed by, um, you know, Eastern cultures, indigenous cultures that have maybe um, held on more closely to the fact that our intelligence is much more holistic than just the intellect, than just turning to the left, than just our analytical ways of knowing. And so it's, you know, all I'm advocating for ever is let's bring more of our intelligence online. This is a very natural part of our intelligence. It's a very natural part of our reasoning. Um, It's a very natural part of how we learn and grow right out of the gate. Um, In fact, it is sort of the base model, if you will, right? Like, like, um, we don't get language until, until much later, we don't get sort of explicit memory until, until we've been on the planet for a few years. And so, um, that capacity is always with us. And I think we have a a lot of opportunity by developing embodied self-awareness and developing, um, sort of the most useful and targeted kinds of embodied practice, we have an opportunity to bring more of that intelligence online so that we're turning both to the right and the left. We're not wearing out the vehicle by doing too much of one thing, the vehicle of ourselves, our, you know, body mind. Um, We're, we have a more, um, just a a more, I want to say balanced, but there's a different word like a more, yeah. inter- Is it like integrated? more integrated, yes, a more integrated um, way of knowing ourselves, knowing others and, and knowing the world and operating within it in ways that are far more effective and satisfying. Yeah, it, actually, that's really beautiful. Yeah, effective and satisfying as well. Um, something you said, I'd love to weave in this notion here of, of like 4E cognition and and just to connect that, do you, you know, you talked about this being a predominantly Western phenomenon, like of, of emphasizing the cognition or rationality. And then we talked about the indigenous cultures or just different cultures around the world. Uh, you know, maybe there's different ways of perceiving and being in the world in those cultures. You know, I'm thinking of like animism as a worldview which was being a you know actually a dominant worldview until the last few hundred years and uh, you know there's all kinds of worldviews. I'm just wondering for you, you know, we can talk about four E cognition, but do you th- do you see any um, resonance between the, the discoveries in um, cognitive science, you know, around this notion of an extended, embodied, and acted self? The, and these worldviews, you know, because it sounds when you when I hear that enacted and embodied and extended, it's like it's like the self becomes different than this, you know, fixed kind of independent entity, you know, like that's walking around in a world. It actually becomes more process like. I'm just wondering if you see a connection between those, and then we can talk about four E cognition as well. What that yeah, is. yeah, totally. I mean, I think so. One thing to say. Um, Western culture has taken intellectual learning to an extreme, both to its benefit and its detriment. And we could potentially say about other cultures, although I am only embedded in Western culture where I've been raised and lived my whole life, right? So I can make 
experientially based comments about Western culture that I can't make about other cultures that I'm not embedded in and um, sort of inherently shaped by because I'm just sort of part of that system. But um, uh, other cultures have also taken other ways of being too extreme to their benefit and detriment, right? So it's, it's not... I, I think the term integration is really important here because it's less about making any one way wrong and making some other way better or right, but really understanding um, there's a lot to us as human beings. And in to the degree that Western culture has sort of been exported to become world culture, right? We're, miss, we're missing a key piece or we're overlooking a, a big part of our intelligence. And that happens to varying degrees to different people, depending on the circumstances of their lives and the conditions and cultures that they're embedded in, whether that's a family culture or a community culture or a national culture or regional or um, sort of much, much wider kind of cultural stream. And so, um, so we're shaped and formed by all of that. And I think the, the idea, um, so cognitive science has gone through these kind of periodic revolutions of kind of first understanding the brain in sort of computer kinds of terms and then kind of understanding the brain as more of a network. Like it's, it's interesting to, to watch how, um, the field of cognitive science has tracked, not accidentally, it's been because of a lot of cross-pollination, but has kind of tracked the rise of computer science. So first it was like, we're all individuals and we've got these little wires in our heads and they're kind of shooting messages, you know, to, to each other. And oh no, the brain is a little bit networked. Oh no, that network is actually embedded in a larger reality. And it's really interesting if you read some of the robotics research, like trying to figure out how to get a robot to recognize something and pick it up is incredibly challenging. Just that simple move, recognizing a cup and picking it up. And we have robots that can do that. It's very possible now, but trying to figure out how to do that is really challenging. Meanwhile, you know, your two-year-old figured that out six months ago and is already throwing the sippy cup across the room every day, right? Like, <laughs> so we, we are, the, the, the latest sort of iteration of, of um, cognitive science understands us as embodied selves embedded in a particular set of circumstances where we enact a reality, right? So that throw the sippy cup across the room or uh, say something to your boss or, you know, take out the trash. We're, we're not just embedded in a set of circumstances. We affect those circumstances as we act within them. And that our mind is extended to understand or make sense of those circumstances. The, the example that I like to use is, is the example of a, um, of a baker. So again, a realm where I'm not particularly skilled, um, but I sometimes fool around. Like a, a really skilled baker will be able to knead bread dough and know 
when it has the certain just right amount of um, tension and give, right? Like, oh, this feel of this dough is going to make good bread. This one is like too wet and sloppy. This one is too dry. And they know it not through, of course, there are concepts, right? That inform that knowing, but they know it by touching the dough and feeling it and understanding it in a very embodied, embedded way. And that actually helps us act in the world from things as simple as baking to things as complex as leading a team. So curious about your take on all of that, but. Yeah. Well, I, uh, yeah, I'm actually curious about, and I think we'll, you know, we, we've talked about what are the implications here for any kind of holistic change process we go through. Um, I think this is a really important part of the conversation because, you know, it, in a way it's expanding the context here, isn't it? It's not just saying uh, if we want to enact change, we want it to be embodied and embodied self-awareness is key inside of that, but it's actually, we're actually taking apart the notion of what the self is or has commonly held to be. And we're saying, no, it's actually something much more nuanced and actually I find much more uh, interesting and, 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 um, there's implications for that basically. So I'm actually curious for you, you know, what, what do you think the implications are for, you know, this embodied embedded and active and extended, uh, cognition, uh, in terms of, um, in terms of like how we could approach our coaching, you know, and also embodied self, we, we can talk about how do we, how do we develop embodied self-awareness and, um, yeah, you know, the role of movement and things. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I think as you we're talking about that, I was like, well, let me let me talk a little bit about the part of the research that focused on antecedents to embodied self-awareness. So what precedes it, what creates it, what what generates or changes or makes a difference in embodied self-awareness? Because I think this is one where one of the one of the biggest sort of research challenges lay, because nobody has really looked at this, really. Um until now. And hopefully now more and more people will. Um, But I, I, so let me back up a step. One of the things that I was really curious to go and investigate was, um, and and this was risky for me, right? I want to say like, actually the whole undertaking was risky for me because I had published this book, your body is your brain. I'm like, here's how I think it all works. I've, you know, this is what I see with my clients. This is, you know, what I see going on. And here's how I think we develop our emotional and social intelligence through embodied practice. I published this book and then I go really put it to the test. Right. And I could have been wrong. Like I absolutely (laughs) could have, I laid it all on the line and I had two very sleepless nights where a statistical mistake made me think that um, everything I had said in my book was completely the opposite of what was true. It was very stressful, <laughs> right? So, so <laughs> it, it, this was a crazy thing to go and do, but I did it because I was like, look, I see this. I really believe that this is what is going on because I've seen it over and over, but we don't have the robust research to support it. And that's why I wanted to go do this research. The piece that was most 
kind of squishy and unknown is how, what are the activities that produce embodied self-awareness? And in the beginning, you were reading the abstract, right? Where I say something like, you know, there's this zeitgeist of interest in um, yoga, in mindfulness, in Tai Chi, all of which is so powerful and positive. And there is a ton of research about the benefits of those kinds of practices. They're extremely beneficial. They're extremely helpful, not for everyone in all circumstances. And, you know, that, that statement requires nuance, but um, by and large on average, extremely helpful practices. So I wanted to look, and by the way, I personally had done a lot of yoga and a fair bit of meditation on and off and on and off in my life. Um, probably 20 years worth before I kind of stumbled on these more body oriented coaching approaches and went, whoa, this is making a much bigger change in my life. I have suddenly become much more effective with my clients. This is different from meditation and yoga. What is that? Why? And I really wanted to, A, see if that was broadly true or whether, you know, maybe that's just me. Um, and, and then B, if it is broadly true, what's up with that, right? So what, when, I, when I went out to look at these um, antecedents, one of the things that I was asking about, and again, this was, this was 550 or so coaches, um, who reported about their experiences of regular practice of yoga, of meditation, of, we looked at some other things too, martial arts, dance, um, different forms of body work. And then we also looked at what, um, what was their coach training like? And, and they rated it on a scale of kind of how heavily conceptual it was to how heavily embodied it was. And we kind of looked at you know, how embodied was their, was their coach training? And what, what we kept seeing over and over was, yeah, yoga, meditation, body work to a certain extent has an effect on embodied self-awareness. Um, dance and martial arts didn't so much, although I think they could, particularly martial arts. I just think we didn't have a um, big enough sample size of people who did those activities to get really clear, a clear read on that. But what we definitely saw is that yoga and meditation and hands-on touch-based body work can support the development of embodied self-awareness. And here I'll get technical again and talk about effect sizes, where what we saw there, um, before I tell you the numbers, one thing I'll say is this particular kind of measurement is really hard to do because there's like a million things that affect embodied self-awareness. So, you know, each of us comes in with a particular nervous system. Some of us are going to be more sensitive to that. Some of us less. We may have experiences of trauma in our lives. We may have other experiences in our lives unrelated to yoga or meditation that develop some kind of embodied self-awareness. So there are many, 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 many inputs. We're just measuring one of those. So the effect sizes here they're relatively small. What we see is that these three things, yoga, meditation, and body work increase embodied self-awareness by about 4% when they're practiced at average levels, which is like, uh, gosh, I don't remember. I, I won't 
wrongly cite my own research. So you can go and look at the dissertation if you want to know what those average levels are. Um, but it was, it was in the neighborhood of like practicing yoga once a week kind of thing, right? So practiced at average levels, this is the effect that, um, that these things have. When we looked at body-oriented coach training, and I'll, I'll say in a minute why I think this is so, but when we looked at body-oriented coach training, when you've done enough of it, which is like a minimum kind of the threshold starts at about 50 hours. When you, when you've had enough of body oriented coach training, that is heavily, mostly 80% or more focused on body oriented receiving it. You mean receiving that kind of training. That's what we studied, right. Was, was for, we were looking at coaches. Yeah. Had some of these practices and had also received training. So for those coaches that had received 50 or more hours of heavily body-oriented coach training, um, the effect size on their embodied self-awareness was 13% and growing the more training they did. Very different from the 4% that we see. You know, it's almost it's three times as much growing into four times as much. Um, that's after 50 hours of training, as opposed to something like yoga once a week, right? So it takes an investment. It takes some commitment. It takes some time. But I think um, one of the, I'm going to briefly say two reasons I think that happens. And then we can talk about it more. One reason I think that happens is particularly if you've been educated in a system that has taught you how to be really sharp with your intellect, but has not necessarily taught you how to make really good use of your embodied intelligence, it's kind of mind-blowing. It's mind-shifting. It's body-mind-shifting, we'll say, to have that experience. And a lot of people talk about having their world upside down. So when somebody once said to me, um, this all seems so obvious, but I feel like you just told me that gravity doesn't exist, right? So we have these like big revelations through this, this kind of training. The other, um, the other reason, and this is, I think, the more important reason why we see these big differentials between body-oriented coach training and things like yoga and meditation, this all needs to be replicated and tires kicked. I will say that, but but we're seeing this across hundreds of people, right? And, and what we're, I, I think one of the reasons is that the development of um, embodied self-awareness when it's embedded in coach training, which is oriented towards looking at your values, looking at your vision, understanding your life, understanding your own habitual behaviors, trying to make sense of the difference you wanna make in the world, trying to become more effective as a leader, all of those kinds of things, you develop embodied self-awareness in a way that is embedded back to this 4E cognition that is experiential, embodied, and embedded in the world that you actually live in, which is really different from going to a yoga class once a week, which feels good, which has incredible health benefits. Don't stop doing that if you do that, right? Um, But it does, it's um, over time, you might be able to embed some of the lessons from that kind of practice in your life. But what's unique about sort of this body-oriented coach training or body-oriented leadership training is that you're developing your body, uh, embodied self-awareness 
already in that sort of 4E cognition, it is much more, it's much more tapping your holistic cognitive capacity because it's embedded in your life. Okay. I said way more than I meant to ask me questions. What do you think about this? No, well, what's really encouraging is that actually a lot of uh, body oriented coaching and it's interesting in a way because we can say like body oriented coaching in a way that, and it's necessary. It, it like emphasizes it's body oriented, but uh, it's actually, we're talking about the self really, aren't we? Like the whole, the whole self. And, oh, yeah. um, uh, but it's really encouraging that it's actually, yeah, it's already tapping into this like 4E cognition territory and, I'm wondering then, I think we were going to talk about, maybe you did already start to tap into this, The what what is it that process then that leads to embodied self-awareness taking place? Um, you know, you already, I think you're already pointing to like, well, it, you know, it's, it's like, it's, a, it's situated inside of a client's um, care, you know? Um, what do they care about? Um, what it, what's what's the situation they find themselves in, and what are the challenges is that bringing, and how does that show up in their body? So I'm just curious how um, you know, and I'm thinking also about bringing the coaching into the present moment, into the body, embodied life. Um, what what are the ways we can increase embodied self awareness and 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 really harness it inside of our coaching to to be more effective really to to produce this holistic change yeah so i think the most powerful thing that that you can do as a coach is develop your own embodied self-awareness more than learning practices more than learning questions to ask more than reading a book about it i have a book about it please read it i think it's you know i I actually am rereading it myself right now because we're about to release the audiobook. So I'm like listening to the whole book and I'm like, this is kind of interesting. I haven't visited it for a while. Um, great. Books are not going to do it for you. You know, like um, you, you have to develop your own embodied self-awareness. Once you've had that experience, then you will start to be better equipped to offer that to your clients. And at first, that may be just like, here's what did it for me, I'm gonna offer it to you, right? It's kind of repeating whatever your teachers may have offered you and offering specific practices for your clients. In in time, um, and I've noticed this a lot with, with people who are kind of stepping onto this path, it will start to feel a little clunky. Like you're kind of bolting on some physical practice that you're not really sure if it's going to work for your client or your client doesn't really take it up or it doesn't, you know? And so um, at that stage, I think it's really, really important to, to start to understand, well, what are the underlying principles? And here's where the intellectual ways of knowing can be really helpful for us, right? Is to kind of go back and understand why does this change occur in this way? And how could I customize it for this client? So that's what I would say is like the overarching trajectory. If you're a coach that wants to develop this in yourself, number one, start by developing your own embodied self-awareness, get the embedded experiential embodied um, learning in your own life. And then, um, you know, I I would say that's sort of 
phase one, phase two is trying things out with your clients. Phase two is, or phase three is um, kind of learning some of those principles so that you can start to customize practices. Okay. So that's nice, but that's not very concrete for anyone listening to this. Um, So in addition to looking for places that you can develop your own embodied self-awareness, what I would suggest is that as you do that, start to develop a vocabulary for sensation and a vocabulary for how emotion might be tied to sensation. That vocabulary will come in words, but not just in words, but in felt sense, in your own body. And one of the things that I often recommend people do is to um, make a list for themselves. So I have a list like this that I share with people who come to learn from me. Um, I, uh, but, but always before I share it, I ask people to create their own list because it's, it's really helpful to start tracking your own embodied experience at a really fine level of detail. So Can you give us some examples of that. Like- yeah. So what I would say is um, take an experience in your life where there's heightened emotion could be, you know, we might make value judgments on emotion and say it's positive or negative emotion, but just for your own self, Joel, let's just do, do you mind doing this together right now? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. So, so something in your life where there's, where there's some strong emotion Yeah. and, um, and let yourself kind of react to that right now in this moment, either call it up in your memory or whatever, and just kind of feel whatever emotion is present and the sensations behind that emotion or underneath that emotion. And see, see if you can just put your hand, you may not be able to reach, but like Mm. put your hand wherever the the strongest sensation is. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a location in your throat and in your chest where that's uh, kind of feeling strong. And then see if you can name the sensation. Is it more warm or cool? It's cool. More, more heavy or light. It's cool. It's like a, a tight tightening, constricting, um, uh, clamping down kind of sensation in in my throat, and actually through the core of my body. I must admit, it even goes down into my solar plexus and belly, and it's like you know, tight tightening up, and then I kind of I'm actually noticing I'm pulling back a bit as I as I do that. It's like and I even feel a bit like I'm fading or something like, like there's a fading kind of sensation. That's great. That's a great description. And so then what I would say to do is um, write down those descriptors, those adjectives that are sensation words. And you can go, Oh, it's cool. It's tight. It's fading. I'm moving back. Right. And um, there's like a, it's all the way through my core. So, you know, where the location of it is, I'm going to invite you to just like take a deep breath and shake that off. You don't need to stay in that, (laughs) (laughs) but thank you for playing along. And, and so what I often have, there's, there's something on the Embright website called the centering log. You won't find it very easily under that title, but if you look for the stress to serenity guide or the stress to serenity, I think it's like a a seven day challenge. Um, uh, 
you'll find in there like a, a sheet, a visual that will help you make these lists of location and sensation for responses to real experiences in your life. And as you get more and more intimately familiar with your own responses to your experiences in your life, that will start to generate questions that you might want to ask your clients. So um, for example, Joel, I'm just going to make up a fictional example, right? So let's say you were like, oh, in this situation in my life, which um, give me a, it doesn't have to be the true reason, but just give me a reason for the like tight throat. Yeah. So like, um, uh, you know, my stepson uh, does, <laughs> it sounds like a very trite thing now. It's not, it's not, this is not the uh, producer of this. It's, uh, you know, he's like uh, gone out and left all the uh, stuff out for cooking. You know, he's made himself a meal, but he's left everything out on the tabletop. Perfect. And this is like an ongoing battle. Right. Like, and it's like, oh, yeah, exa- exactly. It's like this again, you know. Right. Right. Oh, again. Right. So we all know that we have that in our lives somewhere. We're like, really, again, <laughs> um, even with people we love and it'll that'll come up. So there's some if we're having an emotion, we are having a sensation. I guarantee you looking for that sensation in ourselves, starting to track it over time and kind of paying attention and jotting down. Um, this is what my this is what my experience is. And then let's say like, you've kind of got a sense of like, this is how my body responds when I'm like, ugh, again, and it's right down my core and it's in my throat. And let's say that you're with a client and they're talking about a situation at work where they're like, again, and again, this happens over and over. And this person drives me crazy and I can't stand it. And da, 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 da. you can see that they're maybe like, where you might've been fading, they're getting kind of amped up, but your own fade might give you some questions to ask. Like, well, when you, um, when you experience this person doing this again, do you feel yourself kind of like moving in or pulling back would be a question, right? Or from your own experience, you know, that your throat gets tight and you could go, you could just say to your client, what do you notice in your throat or what do you notice along the center of line of your body when you, um, when you get irritated with this person, right? So your own experience will generate questions, not from the standpoint of like, Oh, when that happens, I experience this. Don't you have the same thing, right? It's not like that. It's much more like I've experienced this now. It enables me to act in the world. That's the inactive part of 4E cognition. I can act in the world in a different way based on that experience. I can touch the dough and I have a sense of whether it's ready. I can, I I know from the inside what embodied self-awareness is. I can help lead my client in that direction. Nice. Well, if we stay with this, it brings up another question, which is then um, what, uh, you know, what would you invite next? Basically sounds like that person is increasing their embodied self-awareness around a challenge, persistent challenge. And I'm imagining, you know, that through that kind of awareness, you know, they're, they're kind of becoming aware of it, you know, it's, it's distinguishing in. So there's a cognition kind of starting to take place and, um, what would you reckon, what would you do with a coaching client next? Would there be a kind of continuation of that? What would there be an integration 
we've talked about physical practice as well. Yeah. Would there be an arc, you know, that you might take them through? Yeah. So my dissertation looks not just at awareness, but also at practice. And one of the things that I think is really essential that I, I, I will sometimes say, um, what do I say? <laughs> awareness, <laughs> awareness, <laughs> awareness creates choice. Practice creates capacity, right? So awareness will alert us that there's a different alternative available. Oh, I'm doing this tight throat and shrinking back thing, or I feel a lot of agitation in my chest and I'm moving in, or I'm furrowing my brow and, you know, um, kind of jiggling my knee and um, I'm sort of breathlessly trying to jump into this conversation. I don't know whatever it is that you're noticing. And so this is not just about noticing the challenging parts and going, Oh, here's what it feels like when I'm under challenge. Right? Like that's just one piece of it. Um, It's also really, really important for us to develop that same level of specificity and awareness of who we are at our best, right? Who we are when we're calling on our deepest strengths, who we are when we source inspiration from the world around us. Like sometimes we feel not capable to the task or not up to the task, but we can call on a, a grandfather or an animal companion or an inspiring person from public life and go, you know, this being had these qualities that I want to inhabit and embody and develop in myself. And so we can start to familiarize ourselves with what it feels like the experience of being at our best, of being supported, of calling on inspiration or our our alter ego, right? I I think I've heard Beyonce has this alter ego called Sasha Fierce, right? And so you can kind of choose your own alter ego and step into how that person would stand or hold an expression on their face. And when you develop this and the the, um, centering challenge that I mentioned on my website that has um, kind of a process, not just of writing down what you feel like under challenge, but also what you what that experience is of you at your best. And then how can you learn how to transition between those or how to call up you at your best? Um, And this is really a matter of practice, right? So this is different from going to the yoga mat. It's different from going to the meditation, uh, you know, cushion. Again, all very valuable. Don't stop doing that, but consider augmenting whatever practices you currently have with a regular practice of experiencing yourself at your best and calling that up on purpose. And then different interaction with your stepson when he leaves the dishes all over. Right. So, so Joel, for you, can you think of a moment when you felt particularly inspired or on top of your game or Wahoo or like you really were at your best? Yeah. Yeah, I can. Yeah. And if you do the same thing, like, find somewhere with your hand the sensation that feels sort of most prominent when you interesting feel yourself yeah, at your it's, best. Uh, uh, it's also i'm putting my hand on my heart and uh, lower down on my belly as well uh-huh. Uh-huh. yeah 
And, and describe um, with the sort of most sensory language that you can, what you're experiencing under your hands. And it's interesting because it's actually in my core again. So it's not actually uh, only under my hands, but it's, uh, it's expanding, brightening, even, and that sounds like a visual word, but actually it makes total sense to me as a sensory experience. There's a brightening yeah. and an expanding and uh, strengthen, a feel of, feeling of strength and, yeah. and kind of um, uh, power and dignity. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, so power and dignity would be the emotional correlates in this case right. of a, a, a felt sense of brightening, expanding, um, strengthening, right? And you could write that down and on the, you know, like draw a little silhouette or get the one from the Embright website, but like, this is all, this is all it is, is you draw a silhouette, you fill it in, you go, oh, it's along my core and it's a brightening and an expanding. And when there aren't dishes all over the table, call up that brightening and expanding five times a day, 10 times a day, you can do it while you're sitting at your desk, right? You just did. And you might have to learn what it takes to call that up. So maybe you'll have a particular word, or maybe you'll have a particular memory that you call to mind, or um, maybe you'll have, it might help to set an alarm on your phone or to put a little post-it note, right? So something that helps you practice that brightening and strengthening and expanding experience in your core enough so that the next time there's dishes all over and you go, oh, again, you have the muscle memory, the experiential memory, the embodied memory that makes you go, oh, brightening and expanding. It's not an idea. It's an experience. Mm -hmm. And you've done it enough times that you know how to call it up so that you can change the interaction with your stepson in that moment. Yeah. Cause you're different. Yeah. Yeah. Powerful, powerful. I think that really helps uh, kind of ground our whole conversation inside of um, the, the, the conversation today. I actually want to bring in one last thing. We don't have too long to talk about this, but something that I've been looking into and I think is picking up pace like crazy right now. I know of uh, large coaching firms that are, you know, bringing AI into the work they do. You know, someone on the podcast recently said he reckons um, like 80% of coaching. Uh, well, okay. I'm going to try to remember it right. It's something like um, 80% of coaching can be done 80% as well uh, by, by AI. Um, because it's because it has these steps and stages in it, and and so that's what will happen. I think I got that right. Anyway, it was quite. So my my question is, you, what is that bar? You know, like um, the bar seems to be rising of what AI will be able to do. But my point, I guess, my question is, I think this is a differentiating factor that we're talking about now because you you named how you know robots. The funny thing is, like, the, what I was surprised by, so I'm kind of like, that's all spilling out of my mind. So I'm kind of the question I want to ask you is getting a bit further away each moment. But I was thinking about this. I saw uh, that um, they have these AI, these robotic toilet cleaners, yeah? They're, they're, like, amazing. They're coming in, and 
um, they've got AI coaches, yeah, coming in. That's coming in. And I was always a bit like, oh, it's going to be like people who are driving cars and things like that. They're going to, that kind of work's going to disappear fast. But like you said, it's the embodied work that's actually quite difficult to replicate, you know? So uh, making a meal, um, building a house, things like that, you know? Anyway, um, my, my, I'm just curious, like, how you feel about all of this. It seems like this is this would be something, this embodied and active cognizing element of the work, you know, this deep sensitizing uh, our bodies as an instrument is something that will differentiate us from AI for some time to come. Um, it's such an interesting question. And I, I should put my cards on the table and say, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a, Luddite who feels like the tech sector, which I used to work in, I grew up in Silicon Valley, like I know that world really well. Um, and, I, and I always have a little bit of a like side eye about the rush to profits at the expense of uh, the law of unintended consequences, right? Um, we just don't, we're not very good at projecting what what might be like what the hazards might be from new technology. Um, and I think it's um, biting us a lot right now. There's, there's a lot of harm in the world um, as a result of new technologies that were um, released with no real thought to unintended consequences. And, and I think not a strong concern with ethics. So those are my cards on the table. I'm, I'm not a huge fan. On the other hand, the possibility of democratizing coaching and making it more broadly accessible, right? At the moment, it's so limited to effectively wealthy people. Like one way or another, whether companies are paying for it, whether individuals are paying for it, you got to have a fair bit of disposable income to work with one-on-one -on -one with, with an individual. Um, nevertheless, I think there are some aspects of um, coaching that aren't easily replicated by AI at any time in the, in the near future. So if I'm right that you cannot lead someone to their own embodied self-awareness without having developed that yourself first. If I'm right about that, then I think we have a long time before AI catches up because AI will be able to ask clever questions perhaps about your own embodied experience, it, about a client's embodied experience, right? And, and it might, um, that, that might even be useful right? It might point people in directions that they hadn't thought about. But there's an unseen, uh, there's something unseen that goes on in the deep presence of, and witnessing of another human being. Mm -hmm. And because we are so heavily educated in the direction of our thinking selves, it's very easy to think about your sensations as opposed to actually experience them. So let me give you an example of this right now. Um, think about your belly, right? Just like whatever's going on in your belly. And now um, put your hand on your belly and feel your belly with your hand. 
And now feel your hand with your belly. Hmm. That's nice. Right? That's different. That's a different experience. So one of the things that clients often do when I'm first working with someone who doesn't have exposure in this realm is they think about their sensations or they might try and describe their sensations in language really quickly, but it actually doesn't help them drop into their experience of sensation and that feel your hand with your belly. It actually asks you to have a different experience of yourself. Maybe we can program something to say, you know, pay attention in this way. And, and maybe that would help people to a certain extent. And I'm all for getting this to more people for sure, for sure. But what, but what a computer, I won't say can never do, but can't currently do. And given my inclinations, what I hope a computer will never be able to do (laughs) is to actually be present with you in the moment that you shift your attention and feel something different and something really subtle changes for you. And to time the next question just so, or to time the next observation just so, or to even just be present and witnessing in this very deeply human moment of experiential change. I don't think we'll, we don't, right now AI can help us with the conceptual aspects of coaching, but I think what we've spoken about in this conversation is coaching conceptually is hamstrung and limited by using only a portion of our intelligence. And there's a huge, vast part of our intelligence that is, I believe, the most deeply human part of us that I don't think technology can can meet or address. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. In a way, you know, if you think about chat GPT, which, you know, is going to only uh, be able to kind of reach back into all the knowledge that's ever been coded and then pull something out of that, you know. And for me, um, there's something about the novelty, the emergent novelty of being with another biological being that, you know, you just spoke into so beautifully. It's like that is just such a deeply human embodied experience. And again, I, I do want to say that I think I'm I'm ready to be humble about AI and you know, I'm sure in a year I'll be like, oh, you know, I said that thing a year ago on that podcast with Mandy and I'm eating my own words now. Like, you know, the guy from Amazon, uh, from Google, got the, they had to like push out the side door because he was like saying AI is sentient. And actually that is a, that is a, that is a genuine debate going on. Like what is, is you know, what is what, sentience, what is sentience yeah. in a sense? We, we define it in a particular way. Anyway. That all being said, I, I kind of, uh, yeah, I, I feel quite hopeful and also quite disturbed by the implications of hopeful by our conversation today and, and um, disturbed by some of the potentially compounded effects of technology that may accelerate through AI that you've been pointing to and what you're saying, you know, about, yeah, tech's just been brought into the world 
And um, the moral side of it has been, the ethics side of it has been lacking. And yeah. it's actually had a negative impact on us. So, yeah. And again, I'm I'm pro like tech in, I'm not like anti-tech in anything. Um, so anyway, yeah. I used, to, I, I used to work in technology. I think it has offered many benefits to society. It's the yeah. same kind of thing that I was, saying about overemphasizing the the intellect, right? That if we just look at technology as shiny, new, unalloyed good, we run the risk of sort of overlooking another really important component of, in this case, what we're talking about is like accessing another part of our intelligence that is part of the whole of who we are as human beings. Um, And I think that's just inherently the, nature of technology for all time, starting with, not starting with, but like going back to the printing press, for example, right? There's always disruption and unintended consequences and yeah, good to have some um, humility about all that, as you say. Mm. Yeah. I feel like we could talk about this for quite a long time and I'm aware we're at our time now and uh, it's really good to kind of have you back, actually, Mandy. And you know, you're, uh, yeah. So uh, just just thanks so much for today. And um, I actually do want to say to you, where can we find out more about your work as well? I'm sure people listening want to check out some of the resources you've named as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, Joel, thank you for having me back. You know, we I always love these conversations with you, and um, it's it's just a delight. So. Uh, where can people find more? The website is mbright.org, E-M-B-R-I-G-H-T, mbright.org. And um, you can find there the book, Your Body is Your Brain. You can find a ton of free resources, including many of the podcasts that you and I have done together previously. Um, uh, lots of other free resources, including the Stress to Serenity Guide that I mentioned that would help people go through and kind of track their their sensations for themselves that's it's out there available for anyone for whom it would be useful so yeah brilliant yeah thank you this has been a fun conversation i'm i'm really yeah. grateful to you just want to end by wishing you well and i'll see you again next time mm-hmm.